2 Kings chapter 24. So 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 10 through 17. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Jedekiah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You can be seated. One of my commitments uh, to you is that I would preach and teach through all the scripture, not just the ones that were sort of most given to. And so uh, that, you know, as I've, I picked, I cherry picked the first 15 years of ministry here. All, I'm, I'm now through about 42 of the 66 books of the Bible. So I picked most of them. If I had to ask you kind of like, okay, what are my favorite books of the Bible? You know, what, what are the ones you just really gravitate toward? My guess is not many of you would have Ezekiel on your list. I'm just guessing. Now, I mean, we know the Valley of Dry Bones, Beyond that, it's just a super long book. It's got a lot of chapters in it, and most of them are quite grim because it's just chapter after chapter about judgment. You're like, wow. Well, I can tell you that all of Scripture teaches us something, points to Christ. It's good for us to not just take the, the parts of Scripture that we gravitate toward because when we, when we study a book like uh, Ecclesiastes that we just did or Job, I think we find some richness in it because we force ourselves to look at things that we might not otherwise do. And so we're going to begin. I won't go through each chapter. It won't be 40-something weeks in Ezekiel. We're going to move somewhat rapidly through some of the, the uh long sections where they're preaching judgment, but there's going to be some incredible pictures of the power of redemption, of this salvation history, and of pictures of Christ in here. Most of us think of the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, That's the most pivotal kind of picture that we get. Uh, We used to sing a song about Ezekiel seeing the wheel uh, from chapter 1, and there are a few things, but there's some amazing stuff in here. So um, there's mystery, there's visions, uh, it's it's incredible street theater, and if y'all are into avant-garde street theater... This is Ezekiel. It's wild what God tells this guy to do. So anyway, 
Buckle your seatbelts for the next few weeks. We're going to look at the book of Ezekiel. Before we do, though, as always, we've got to set it in context. So let's put our history and geography. Those of you who like maps, those of you who like history, we're going to, we've got to figure where this is in time and space. So you're going to see a map come up here with uh, some details, and that's why we read 2 Kings 24, because this is the part of um, uh, history where Ezekiel is found. So... Let's jump back. I'm going to do 400 years in about four minutes, all right? So we're now back in 1000 BC, and David has united the, the kingdoms of Israel. It's, it's at the pinnacle of its political power. Uh, it's a significant independent nation at the time. After David, Solomon comes, does not have David's heart toward God, and the nation splits into two as a judgment against his son, Rehoboam. So we've got now a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of Judah. They're not nearly as powerful, not only because they've split into two, but because they've begun to become like the nations around them. So what is Israel's purpose? Why is Israel even a people group? Do you know? All right, we know from Deuteronomy 7 that it's because God wanted a people to reflect him. So he chooses Abraham and he develops a people that they would become reflective of all, to all the world of what this one God looks like. In a complete polytheistic cultures around them that the one true God would be reflected in flesh by these people through the covenant, through the promise. So now... Weakened by king after king who violates the covenant, who, who completely dishonors God, except for a few, just a few blips, we have king after king. So from the year 1000, for about 150 years, there's no dominant people uh, ruling up north. We have Egypt in the south. But then around 850 or so, we have the kingdom of Assyria. We call it Syria today, but it's larger than it was. So Syria, Assyria would be the boundary with the, um, not the uh, dotted line, but the, the line because they, all the way down to Egypt, they began to dominate. And for about 150 years, they were a cruel people. They would take not only... Uh, the Semitic peoples, but everyone, and they would take them and they would spread them out through their kingdom, and you would be forced to assimilate, worship their gods. They wouldn't keep people together, and the Assyrians were were brutal, just brutal people. So by the time 722 rolls around, they have now captured the northern kingdom, sent people into exile. And then there's a king you may be familiar with. The Bible speaks of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And he goes after the southern kingdom. He gets all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, the king at the time, finally says, we're out of answers. God, can you do something? And surprise, surprise, God honors the covenant and he does something. And in an amazing uh, miracle, They come all the way to the gates of Jerusalem and cannot penetrate the first time that the Assyrian army is unable to do anything about it. Well, you'd think they'd learn something, but Hezekiah doesn't. So he he tries to make political treaties, and he chooses a group called Babylon to go. And he says, Babylon, you and we together, we're bad, and we can take on Assyria. Back the wrong horse. Assyria, that lasted about five minutes, and Assyria just wipes them out, and uh, 
Sennacherib and Assyria, he decides that, um, you know, uh, that, that's it. And so Sennacherib crushes Babylon, and about 50 years later, though, Babylon, now we're getting to the end into the 600s B.C., this is, and Babylon rises up and overwhelms Assyria. So you've heard of this king, Nebuchadnezzar. He and his father, Nabopolassar, there's a good trivia question. Those two gather together and they defeat, they begin to defeat the southern kingdom. King after king, except for Josiah for a very brief time, all turn their back on God, try to make political alliances and treaties, and God keeps calling out through prophets and others saying, ask me, turn to me, let me be your God and defend you and show my might, and they won't do it. So they won't obey his covenant, they, won't, they disobey, and finally, they begin, Babylon begins to take in a series of hostages and takes them away. One of those groups was what we read this morning in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Kings 24. Jehoiachin is the king at that time, and when one of the waves that leaves the Jerusalem area, the southern kingdom, and is taken into Babylon, which is the northern where the dotted line is, and you can see the capital Babylon is up there, and they are taken from the Jerusalem area up to Babylon. Unlike Assyria now, what Babylon does is they will take the whole group and allow you, and this is going to be really important in the book of Ezekiel, they will allow the groups to stay as their own entities in Babylon. They take all the leadership, they take the brain trust, they take the, 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 the most um, uh, spiritual people, and they put them in their city, but assimilate them and allow them to retain their identity. And so in doing that, the people that are left in the Jerusalem area are uh, uneducated. It's, it's, been, it's decimated as an area, and they figure there's going to be no problem with that group without the leaders. I mean, no problem controlling. So with that, we see in about the year 690, say 700, it's easy to remember, Ezekiel is taken away. Now, if you've got your Bible open to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to see what happens because he gives us a very clear picture of who he is and what he was thinking as this book begins. Ezekiel 1, 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Channel. Now, you'll notice in Babylon there's a river, the Euphrates, right? Tigris and Euphrates rivers who come, come together. The Euphrates River, uh, one of the tributaries or maybe even just an irrigation canal down south, a little bit south of Babylon would be where the Kibar Canal is. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Okay, so let's look at the first thing. In the 30th year, we don't exactly, it doesn't tell us exactly what it's referring to. Scholars are split on what the 30th year is. It's quite possible it is Ezekiel's 30th year. So I guess we just have wind blowing the doors open, the Holy Spirit, you can come in. 
In the 30th year, in the fourth month, they think maybe this was Ezekiel's 30th year. If that's the case, it was because that's when priests served. Uh, In the fourth chapter of, I believe it's Deuteronomy, it tells us that priests serve from the ages of 30 to 50. So they may think it was in Ezekiel's 30th year that... uh, that he was, because what we find out is he was a priest. In verse in chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. So he was a, he was a Levite, a direct descendant of Aaron, and he might have served as a priest in the Jerusalem temple, because that's where priests served. So here he is, if that's the case. If not, what's interesting, though, is the people of God had been taken out of their land. They'd been taken out of the promised land. We can't really identify with how much the Jewish people identifies with the land being given to them. This was their inheritance. This was the promise of God. Remember when Abraham's promise, right, to his descendants, this land I'm giving you. And, you know, it comes down to this day, guys. Here we are in this century the fights over the land re- remain because this is God-given, not by man. And so for the complete uh, uh, destruction of the soul and identity of a people, take them out of the land. And so for Ezekiel and for the few thousand in this wave of exiles that were taken out, Jerusalem still existed as a city at this time. It's not going to be destroyed for another 20 years until 586. But it's a shadow of itself, and they're not allowing it to function as God intended it to. Okay, so what do we, what do, we do with this? Well, is this a good history lesson? Fascinating. I know the geography. You can, that's fine. You can take the map down now. But what, what do we do with this? Well, what we're going to see, the lessons that we're going to learn from this book begin with the fact that God shows up there in Babylon. Look at what it says. The heavens were opened, verse 1, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. King was taken away as well. It cut off the head, as it were, of the ruling group. They had installed his uncle Zedekiah as a puppet ruler. And there they were, and God shows up there on the Kibar Channel in some little tributary in an irrigation ditch. He's, sta- he's sitting there, maybe in the 30th year of his life, and the heavens are open, and he begins to see a vision. He's a priest. What's the role of a priest? The role of a priest in the Old Testament is to mediate between God and man. It's to be someone who would stand before the Lord and offer sacrifice and would say, this is the word of the Lord, this is what's coming. And Ezekiel can't do that in the temple where it was intended to, and yet God speaks to him in exile. God speaks to him in the midst of Babylon. And this vision that he gives is crazy. It's, uh, I mean, you, you look, if you read the vision, and if you, in, uh, in Hebrew, it's uh, interesting because he keeps saying, like, like, like. 
Hearing somebody speak, like sometimes when people speak, they go like, you know, like, it's like this, you know, like, like, that's how it reads in Hebrew. It was sort of like this. It was like these uh, creatures with four heads. It was kind of like, like they had wheels and it was kind of like there's wings like, it sort of reads like that because he's trying to give words to this vision, this dream, this picture he has as he's staring out over the channel and what he sees is the presence of God. The word for the glory that it says is kavot. It's a very important word in Hebrew. And you'll, you'll hear it, see it written hundreds of times. And it's translated in a number of different ways because it's hard to translate in English. One of the ways it's translated is it's heavy. Kavot is when you look at something that's substantial. Like when you pick something up. And it, it's, maybe it's small, but it, you know, it's really dense. And you'd say, it's heavy. It's got kavod. It's, it's something. It's, it's a word for honor or respect is kavod. Something serious is kavod. And so there in Babylon, there when they have no political power, when they're prisoners, they're exiles, they're not living under their own rule, they're living under someone else's priorities. And he says... The substantial weight of God, the glory of the Lord, it says, that would fill all the earth. That's kavod. There with them. And it's this picture. And here is what a Jew would have thought. We don't think this way because we live in a different time. And after when the the Holy Spirit has been released generally, and we think of the Lord being everywhere. For the Jew at this time, the Lord was in his holy temple. He was in Jerusalem. The presence of the Lord wasn't generally with all people. It was isolated. That's why you had a tabernacle. You had a tent. You now had a temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so what we have here is a picture beginning at verse 4 as he sees this incredible, almost surrealistic thing. And look, if you will, in the last verse of chapter 1. Like the appearance of... Of the bow that is on the cloud on the day of rain. It's quite a way to say rainbow. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness. That's that like word again. It's like the kavod of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. Where does the glory of the Lord reside for the Jew in the Old Testament? It resides in the Ark of the Covenant. It resides over top of that. That's where you go to the mercy seat. That's where you go to get forgiveness. It's where the day of atonement happens. That was not able to really function anymore. The priests were taken away. And the Lord comes to his people. He doesn't say, you see, you sinned. You have been violating my covenant. You leaders, you priests for years. You haven't been doing it my way. I'm done with you. That's that's us, by the way. You get that, right? That's what we do. I've had enough of you. The Lord is not faithful to your faithfulness. You get that, right? He's not faithful because you're faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. His covenant. He's not leaving you or forsaking you because he is faithful to what he promised. And to his people, he made a promise. I will be your God. But he's not leaving you in your sin. He's not turning a blind eye to the dishonor 
that he's shown by the people. He's, see, God is this perfect, as we sang this morning, peace and justice kissed together. They're together in perfect love. The justice of God demands that when the covenant is violated, something's got to happen. And so he said, this is serious enough that this land that I've promised you that will always be yours, I'm removing you. And by the way, the glory of my temple, the presence, it's going to leave too. The picture we're going to see later in Ezekiel is of the actual presence of God leaving his temple and going away. Not forever. But so his people can be disciplined and know the importance that God's not playing games with his holiness. And neither is he with us. For those of us who think, oh, well, I can kind of do what I want and I can just bank on God's forgiveness and love, you can in one sense, but believe me, exile is not merely for the Jews in the Old Testament. It is for those of us who decide, I'm going to do it my way. I'll tell you, just like happened to them, it's happened to me and it may happen to you. The Lord loves you enough to be a disciplining father who disciplines in love. But he teaches us his ways. And he says, come, come to me. I will rush to you. I am that father to the prodigal child who's ready for you. So here they are in the likeness of the glory of God. And Ezekiel falls on his face and he's about to hear the word of the Lord. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week as we begin to go into this book. Here's what I want you to take away, and I want you to think about these things as we move forward. First of all, there's going to be a lot of bad news. <laughs> there's going to be chapter after chapter. and We're not going to dwell every chapter on all the judgment that's coming on, but there's going to be a string of bad news. Keep focused on the good news. The good news is this, that God has a sovereign plan for his people even in the midst of exile. And many of the promises that we read from a great distance that the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel were experiencing, both of them is in this time period. The, the promise most famously probably in Jeremiah 29 where it says, uh, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Know that verse? Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. This is happening as Babylon is at the door about to crush and do the final exile. It's, that prophecy is going to be given a few years from now. That prophecy, we take it and put it on our coffee mugs and say, well, God's got a good plan for me. This plan was given right in front of 70 years of exile. Because God hadn't, he's saying, I'm not leaving you. But we've got some water to walk through. We've got some fire to walk through to purify you. So hold on to the promise. Look, guys, I understand life is hard. And sometimes you get news about yourself or others, your family, things happen and things are really hard. And you guys, some of y'all have walked through things that I never have and, and you've been incredible to walk through it. The promise of God is there for the holding on and the gap between what you know will be 
and the 70 years is over, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. By the way, 70 years from now, all of you will be dead. We don't really put that on the coffee cup. When that promise is given, not a one who received it, maybe a baby, but basically not a one who heard that promise would be alive to see the day when the 70 years was over and they, the promise came true. And through a series of circumstances, and God, see, he's sovereign over all things. And that Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib biblically are considered simple tools in the hands of God. Now, if I was living under their rule and reign, I don't think I would have seen that. But the Bible takes a long view. And it says, this is who I am. I'm using Nebuchadnezzar to purify my people. So that when you walk out of the exile, you no longer will be idolaters. And they weren't. Interestingly enough, idolatry virtually ended after the exile as they practiced it prior. I know the plans I have for you. Hold on to the promise between now and then. Guys, we live in an age and a day, and it's the next 18 months of our life are going to be fear-mongering as people think that everything is going to happen that's going to affect our lives is going to happen between now and whatever the next election of this or that is going to be, whatever the next movement, whatever the next wave is. And we need to know that our God is sovereign and he still has his tools in the hand of the Lord. And as the people of God, we need to be careful not to forget that there's two stories happening. The one here and the one above, because in exile, and you, you, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like a person in exile in a culture where their priorities aren't mine. Sometimes I feel that way, and I have to remind myself that the glory of the Lord, the kavod, still comes to us. And nothing will stop the covenant power of God from being seen in the life of one who says, yes, God, here I am. Whether I'm sitting in exile in Babylon or whether I've been released to the promised land and I'm back rebuilding the temple, God is still God. Hold on. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for your purposes, which are so much greater than the short term. For your love and your promise and your covenant, which last for all generations. The Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages. Lord, those who live for today would say, this is the only hour that matters. This is the only minute. Everything is happening now. And we see salvation history from a larger lens that you have been at work from the first people that were created until the day when the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem, Lord, when it is finally complete, we will see that we're part of a larger story. Lord, and our part is to walk in the promise. Lord, just like Ezekiel was able 
to see himself as a mediator, a prophet and a priest there in the exile, Lord, so we can function like that. Lord, we have the calling to stand before you and to turn around and to tell the people that the forgiveness of God is available to those who will call upon the name of the Lord and accept the offering of sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the glory of the Lord no longer found in the Ark of the Covenant, but found in its fulfillment in the blood that was shed once for all. Lord, and in that we can rejoice. For on the night you were betrayed, you took bread. And when you gave thanks, you then broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, you took a cup of wine. When you given thanks, you gave it to them and you said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Oh Lord, how we need the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that you have done that once for all on the cross. And Lord, we remember. And that's why it's such a joy to be able to confess the sins we've done anew because we know they're covered under your blood. If we're faithful, Lord, to confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive it. Lord, you've given your life as a ransom for many. So we accept the sacrifice. Lord, we take this bread and this wine until you come again. Lord, remind us, keep us focused on what's eternal when everything around us wants us to focus on what's going to pass away. These are the gifts of God. They are for the people of God. So we take them in thanksgiving. Amen. This morning as we come and take the elements, the the body and the blood. It's our custom here to come. Dip, take one of the wafers, dip it in the wine, or the darker ones are gluten-free. Come, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, come having confessed your sin, knowing there's nothing between you and the Lord. Come and find strength in him. This table is open to all who call on the name of the Lord. You don't have to be a member of Living Hope. This is the Lord's table. So come and enjoy his goodness, his grace. Once you've taken that, I'm going to ask, I think there are some people here who could really use prayer for various things. I know the, the, uh, it's tight in the room here a little bit, but I'm going to ask just at the top of the steps, right? I know the fan may be a little loud, but you'll work it out. But there'll be some people back there to pray for you and with you right there at the top of those steps. Would you take a minute on your way back to your seat And see what God does when you ask him for yourself or for others. The Lord has an amazing way of fulfilling his covenant, of honoring his covenant love. But let's turn to him in it.